This episode is sponsored by a donor to Global Wellness Institute, or GWI. GWI is a 501c3 nonprofit organization with a mission to empower wellness worldwide by educating the public and private sectors about preventative health and wellness. GWI's research, programs, and initiatives have been instrumental in the growth of the $4.5 trillion U.S. dollar wellness economy and in uniting the health and wellness industries. Visit globalwellnessinstitute.org. On this episode, we have Addie Connor. Addie grew up on a farm in Vermont and showed proclivity towards analytical careers at a young age. She launched her own socially conscious company while still in college, and shortly after graduating, she joined a paid search lead generation agency that was acquired by the Washington Post. She then worked on a spin-off Facebook ad agency, becoming their largest purchaser of ads. When a nine-figure deal for that business fell through, Addie transitioned and through a series of serendipitous events is now co-founder of Breathwork. Well, Addie, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. <laughs> if I'm looking down, it may be because I'm experiencing some momentary pain. <laughs> well, I want to ask you about that. Yeah, and yeah. you broke three ribs last week. Tell us Thank what you. happened. It opened up beaches in Ventura and Santa Barbara counties. Sure. So I got like a little place to stay in Carpentaria for the week nice. uh, so that I could, you know, surf either in the morning or at night yeah. um, pretty easily. And I was out Friday, sort of evening, late afternoon, getting in a surf. And I, you know, I had someone sort of next to me. Um, I went over the wave. I allowed her to take the wave because she, okay. she was better positioned for it. Um, but she, you know, was. I think the wave was still a little bit too far over her, and uh, she yeah. crashed on the wave pretty quickly. Not someone I knew, just a stranger. Yeah. Her her board flew back. You know, oh, it's like dear. a leash or something like that, wow. and just the power of the wave times the board blunt force object against my eighth, ninth, and 10th rib, I guess, just fractured it. So um, but I, it's cool. I feel really lucky, you know, um, had that been my neck or my face, it would have been a lot worse. Yeah. I was fairly close to the shore. So while, you know, my breath was, was a little knocked out, I was able to kind of crawl to shore. And then um, I had a friend who was still on the beach that I was able to walk to. Wow. And two of my friends that I was with are both sort of trained okay. energy healers and yeah. yogis. And then I actually brought out my breathwork app and we have a pain relief breath. Um, oh. a four, yeah, a 426. So I just started breathing and I, you know, my friends wanted to call an ambulance. I was able to, through just visualization and breathing, get to the point to be able to stand up. And it was a pretty long walk back to the car. I was able to make it. I did go to the emergency room just to make sure I wasn't internally bleeding. Sure. Um, and one of the fascinating things when you do break ribs is that you, because you know, a lot of people that in this position, um, it hurts to breathe, um, start, start shallow breathing. Yep. You have, you're more um, susceptible to getting pneumonia. Right. So while you can't cast a rib or even really bandage a rib, one of the biggest things that a doctor will then tell you going home is to practice deep breathing exercises and to really force yourself into breathing. 
And I think since I was doing that since the very beginning of the injury, I've put myself just in a much better place um, and have sort of, you know, my body has responded really well so far. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm staying positive on this healing process that's, Good. you know, with a rib semi unknown, but each day yeah. seems to be feeling a little bit better. Good. So the pain has come down. Some has subsided a little bit. The pain subsided a little bit. You know, it's just another signal of slowing down. Yeah. Um, which is something that I struggle with on a day-to-day basis. Um, well, knowing I, what you've accomplished, I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> These forcing events, they uh, sometimes they'll just require it of you when you're not willing to do it yourself. Um, so that's, it's always my lesson, it feels like. And the last time I went to the ER, broke two of my wrists. And it actually then put me on a course of my life where I never would have met Nick, our uh, chief oh, innovation officer for yeah. breath for breathwork, right. had that not happened. And it, you know, it's it's funny how these things then yeah. change your path in life and sort of change the inflection in your course. That's for sure. Well, um, share with us, Addie, what was it like growing up in Vermont on a farm? Uh, pretty magical, actually. I think it's like a fairly idyllic childhood, if you were to describe one. You know, my, my parents remind me, like, when I was little, you know, I used to name all the animals. Um, <laughs> but obviously, and... Did you, you have know, a pig named Babe? I want to hear that you had a pig named Babe. No, but one winter, my grandmother did give my sister and me pigs for Christmas, and it turned into this whole thing, because, you know, they start off so small. Yeah. And then by the end of it, my mom was having to go to, like, three restaurants a night to, like, get enough food for these pigs um but that being said like there were certain animals that came on the farm that then did eventually end up getting eaten but i i guess i really embraced that i used to ask my questions who were we eating tonight um it, it gave me it gave me this really special connection i think to food um just a source and then also to nature you know i I naturally have this weird, very analytical brain. Um, like when I was three, I could do like mental math, like multiplication, division, like making weird noises. So it's always, wow. that's always been part of me. But then I think that, like, thank goodness in my life, that's been balanced out by this ability to connect with nature, to escape into nature, to get into flow states. And to feel sort of that connection to the broader world. Amazing. Are your parents, uh, do they have a technical background? No. Um, You know, neither. my parents were sort of uh, hippies growing up. And I think my mom is naturally like extremely entrepreneurial. Like, Mm. you know, all of a sudden like should have a goat cheese business or like should be like making felt hats. I don't know. Like there's all just whatever she did, she seemed to be really good at, and it seemed to catch on. And then as soon as like, it did become big, then she got bored with it and moved to the next thing. And my dad (laughs) is like, super chill. He's like a fly fisherman and Mm. and just has that nature connection and is also incredible with hands and building things. Um, So he's naturally very mathematical of really finding the things that you enjoy in life um, and leaning into those versus 
trying to suffer and struggle and have yeah. money be be the emphasis you know yeah, money no, was never never the goal for my parents yeah do you have siblings uh yeah i've got one older sister okay yeah she an entrepreneur as well no you know she it was like she and i were almost like brain opposites my parents <laughs> used to joke like if you combine the two of us we would be perfect um <laughs> my sister was incredibly artistic Okay. Um, and I think suppressed her analytical side. Now, what was it like going to Western Mass for uh, Deerfield Academy? Oh my God, so weird. Um, <laughs> I didn't know what I was getting into. So like there was a history in my family of going to boarding school. So like that was a thing. And my cousin, like when I was growing up, I was a high academic achiever. So I always had this, and I grew up next to Dartmouth College. So I had this idea of high academics. And growing up in New England, it's like you have Andover, Exeter, St. Paul's, and Deerfield. It's like mm -hmm. the top boarding schools, right? And my cousins went to St. Paul's, and my rival went to Exeter. And then Andover <laughs> seemed too nerdy. And I went to lacrosse camp at Deerfield. So I was like, oh, it's so beautiful there, the campus. I'll go there. I was, I was breaking every single rule and constantly getting in trouble and was like the, the administration's least favorite person. My junior year, I, you know, I was on probation and I was like, I am going to do a semester. Um, there's this program that came in to like present on campus that was starting that year. And it was in Leadville, Colorado, the highest town in the U.S. It's over 10,000 feet. Wow. And it was all around winter camping and mountaineering and experiential education and you spent half your time in the classroom, in cabins, and half the time just learning in the backcountry. Mm -hmm. So I applied and I never would have gotten in had it not been the first year of the program and they needed students. Mm -hmm. And then I also met this incredible mentor, Jamie Wheel. He was my history teacher and then advisor. So there's 20 of us in this program. And he really you know, was the first person who taught me sort of about my brain and, you know, sort of understanding more flow states and how I worked and like, yes, that I was, my brain was different, but that it was good. <laughs> and, um, and it was really cool because, you know, you fast forward, there's just all of these sort of synergetic things in life, but Jamie became the first person who taught me breath work Amazing. and, Nick, who I mentioned before, yep. he went to that semester program two years after me, which wow. is just crazy, small wow. world. Yeah. And Jamie was his advisor. Then I came back from the semester and I just started crushing everything. I found, <laughs> a, I found AP economics, I found AP statistics, all these subjects that just worked with my brain because I now had a better idea of how my brain works. Wow. But then lo and behold, my senior spring, the administration still hates me. I forget a footnote on my APR history paper. It, you know, the thing was quoted. I didn't put the source in my bibliography and I didn't footnote it because I had lost the book or I lent it to a friend. Kicked out my senior spring oh my for God. this technicality. So then I thought that my whole world was crashing down. You know, I was like a high achieving kid, thought that I was going to go to an Ivy League school then not one college accepted me. Oh, and so that was I'm like, sorry. I mean, it was clear it was a witch hunt. They were just times. looking 
they were looking for some excuse. Yeah. Otherwise, and so you went back to Vermont and studied at University of Vermont. Yeah. So thankfully, my home state university accepted me late. You know, I applied in May and uh, they gave me a spot. Nice. And it ended up kind of being the perfect place for me because honestly, like, I I needed more freedom than yeah. like having to, you know, be in a situation where I just show up for class every day and take attendance and all of that. I was able to do a lot of exploring. I was able to do a lot of skiing. And then I, by my senior year, I was able to sort of figure out some subjects that really interested me from an economic standpoint. And I spent my senior year writing a thesis paper along with starting a company that supported my thesis wow. that was sort of my first passion project. Okay. And, you know, the Lance Armstrong bracelet had just come out. Oh, and it yeah. was that, that ugly yellow plastic thing. But everyone was wearing it because they wanted to be seen as charitable, right? Um, so everyone's sporting around these Lance Armstrong bracelets. And I'm like, man, they are like getting a premium on these very, you know, this is a very high margin project, all because it's aligned with a good cause and, and people want to be seen as good. Yeah. So I was like, that actually shifts a demand curve, right? Mm -hmm. And in, you know, so in microeconomics, then if you can shift the demand curve up, you can charge a higher price point along that trend curve. So very, very cool without having to shift supply. Yeah. So I started exploring, and there was zero data at the time, you know, what would be the impact of social responsibility on, it, on business, not from just a doing good standpoint from the world, but actually on an economic standpoint. And is, and then I started asking the question, is the invisible hand actually uh, going to move, you know, will Adam Smith to, to be more socially responsible because consumers are demanding it and willing to pay a higher price point. Wow. Um, yeah. So I started then making belts and flip-flops, designing belts and flip-flops oh. that featured endangered species as the patterns because you know I went to this super preppy boarding school <laughs> and everyone summered on, on Nantucket and we all wore these whale belts these from Murray's Toggery shop these Nantucket whale belts and I was like well we're all wearing whales already yeah. why don't we just put an endangered whale species right. on and actually right. put a percentage of profits to support the whales so it was hilarious as a senior in college I I found someone who had done some like manufacturing in New Hampshire that I thought could put the different straps together. They were making clogs. And I drove to this factory in New Hampshire and I convinced this dude to fund my project <laughs> and to create all the samples for it. And he had done manufacturing contracts with Patagonia, which was my favorite wow. store. And yeah. Chonard was my favorite mentor CEO and then he's like we got to take this to China because I was going to make my margins off of using needlepoint as one of the materials and I couldn't get the needlepoint factories in China to sign these special contracts so I had to had to sort of stop this business plus my parents ended up eventually kicking me out of their house and said you need to you need to get a job Okay. Um, well, what I also find so fascinating about your career, Addy, is that you go into these areas of like human behavior 
um, and 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 almost like the you know you were talking about um, your um, mentor in Colorado, thinking about the brain, but you apply this analytic rigor to it, which uh, you know you grounded in numbers, which I think is so amazing and fascinating. It's sort of how my brain naturally worked. When I graduated college, my sister introduced me to a friend of hers who was a digital marketer. She was head of e-com for like a big home goods site. And like, we're sitting at dinner and my sister was like, you've got to meet this girl. Like she's got the same brain as you. Like, and she just like <laughs> loves her job and crushes it. And uh, it was so clear to me at this dinner that like, I was going to be good at this. Like I was able to solve some problem that she was having at the table. And then I started just looking around and I found iProspect, which was a couple of miles from my house and I could, um, I could bite to it. And wow. they were just starting a paid search division. Okay. And I think like that was for me, you know, it was so clear to me that that should be math. Um, and at the time it was mostly like psych majors and stuff like that. And economics is behavioral psychology. We're just doing it in more of a quant way. Yeah. And so for me, it just clicked for me. And I sort of just found something that worked. And then, I, and then I just got so lucky. Like a friend of mine from my prospect went and started working at the MIT Tech Review. And these MIT guys who were starting all of these lead gen companies and had sort of a little incubator and they were creating all this ad tech, contacted her to see if she was interested in applying for a job, you know, to lead all of their, like, it was all paid search at the time. And she had just accepted this job at the MIT Tech Review. So she's like, I can't interview for it, but I've got, I know someone who yes. you should talk to. Like, they were looking at all Ivy PhDs, but I had really good practical knowledge. And I was able to articulate the paid search market and what I believed was Google's algorithm and how everything worked just from mainly practical observations. This was at and Avenue 100? Yeah, they just completely changed my world in terms of my, I think my own belief in myself mm. in terms of my own academic power. Like anything that I could think of, they could build and they just valued it so much. So it was like this incredible cycle of beginning to learn to trust my own instincts Kudos um, to following your instinct and just being natural and on your own path, just being you. Yeah, totally. But sometimes you need like validation. <laughs> now that company, Avenue 100, was acquired by the Washington Post. Exactly, exactly. So that was amazing. You know, it was acquired for a nine-figure sum. Well, then um, share about your other experiences. Adam. Was it at Social Code or Acquisition Labs where you started? You were one of the first few Facebook ad agencies or marketing Yeah, firms? sort of like late 2008, early 2009, Facebook started allowing ads. In order to diversify revenue, I had built out this like big affiliate program. So I'm like dealing with all these affiliates and I just hated it. Uh, it's like so much legal and like these guys were just scumbags and I was mostly using them from email traffic, but I noticed traffic behaviors that didn't, that were definitely not email. So I started digging into a lot of the referral traffic 
And I noticed that a lot of the affiliates were starting to get on Facebook. And I was like, well, I'm not going to let the affiliates take that. If it's like working for them, I need to, to figure out what's going on on Facebook. I got onto Facebook and started just playing. And like, I went and I talked to my favorite PhD analyst, Kathy, who is just brilliant. She was a speed reader. She'd read like almost 20 books a day. And yeah, and actually like took notes on all of them. She was incredible. Uh, And I was like, Kathy, so Facebook, like it's different than search. There's more lines of text and it has an image. There's more variables that I'm dealing with and I'm not bidding on a keyword. I'm bidding on attributes of people. Right. I'm bidding on age, gender, like all this stuff. So I'm like, this is, yeah, so this is a multi, like a much more complex equation. Yeah. And she's like, okay, let me design basically a full factorial experiment for you mm. with a custom regression analysis on the back end. Okay. And so she does, she does this. I'm able to start looking at the data and just flywheel off of that. And with every dollar, I'm just learning. And at the beginning, face, first day, Facebook cashed me at $1,000 on my credit card. The next day, I get $5,000. The next day after that, I get $10,000. By the end of the week, I'm spending over $100,000 a day at an 80% margin. And I'm just tuning this thing and learning. Wow. So I was able to reach out to Facebook um, and get second access to their API because we just started building tools on yeah. top of this. Yeah. And, you know, I started working with them because I had this incredible data. So it was really cool. I was able to just sort of get super early on that platform. And then the chairman of the Washington Post, Don Graham, was on the board of Facebook. Right. So he hears through the grapevine that a company that he acquired out of Boston, you know, a year or two ago, is one of Facebook's largest advertisers. So he came to explore the business. He also had his son-in-law, Tim O'Shaughnessy, had, was at the height of, it was the height of the Groupon Living Social days. Uh, yeah. And Tim was the CEO of Living Social. So he's kind of getting it from two sides. Yeah. Two people that he knows are like crazy on Facebook ads right now. He's Mark's mentor. And so he really believed that there could be a huge business on Facebook. So he came and asked my CEO, Addie's doing the Facebook stuff, go talk to her. Um, So that was how that started. You know, I, it's funny. And like, if you, if you look at my career, I, it was never like me being like, oh my God, like so proactive, like I need to hustle and start this company. It's always been more that something's come to me and said, you know, there's there's this opportunity um do do you want to seize it yeah i was like cool let's let's do this and so it first incubated under avenue 100 it was a split i partnered with don's daughter laura who is a project manager at slate one of their um other properties and she and i just started exploring it and then once i knew it was a business we spun it out and then a week later we landed by chance American Express was trying to start a new holiday small business Saturday Mm. and was struggling and was not going to be able to do it 
um, in the means that they were doing it. And we got connected with them. And uh, overnight, I got to run the largest Facebook campaign yet in history and also prove out my economics thesis. I was able to run every single variant of the ads. They were donating a dollar to everybody who became a fan of Small Business Saturday by saying that they were going to donate a dollar to Girls Inc. allowed them to buy fans for $2 at that Mm. time Mm. versus if they took that language out at the level that they were buying, the amount of money they were spending, it would have been $6 to Amazing. buy a fan. And then right? um, was that the platform that the company where there was a, a deal on the table, but then walked away from it and um, you kind of went to Mexico after that? Yeah, man. After watching Avenue and Hunger get sold and everyone, you know, I was like, okay, I'm going to build and sell a company. You know, I'm going to, it's, it's going to happen. It'll be like a three to five year thing at the velocity that we're going and we'll sell for at least a hundred million dollars. And uh, yeah, we felt like this was my like life purpose somehow. Like, so I was like on this path and then it was 2014. So just about five, exactly five years from that small business Saturday campaign. Uh, You know, we're negotiating with one of the top five holding companies they wanted to buy just half of the business for a nine figure sum. Everything was happening and I thought it was going to happen. And then it didn't. Um, my business partner like did not want to sell. This is And yeah. Um, and you know, it was a lot of like her family and more of her contacts that were the board. Again, like I hadn't set myself up with the right sort of power um, to, to say really anything. And so I, I tried to do what I thought I could. The CRO and I, who were sort of really running a lot of the business, he and I said, we're going to leave if you don't sell the company and didn't force a deal. Wasn't enough. And I, I think that was like, that was tough. I walked away. Like I was leaving my family and that, but I there was also a sense you had been betrayed by your family. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, Laura and I, we were like, we were like a divorce, a separated couple that yeah. was just staying together for the kids already. Yeah. I already had a trip planned to Mexico okay. with, with my family. And I always stayed at this place called Uno Astro Lodge. And it had like the best sort of cabin on the beach um that you could rent but then it also had like this hippie commune of tents in the back but it would be like this very diverse group of people that i ended up just staying like for a couple months is that where you is that where you learned to surf uh i learned to kite surf there okay and then there was a there was one shaman that spends a a month there every year and i happened to overlap with her And I would spend every single day with this shaman. And she was talking a lot to me, like a lot of people were doing plant medicine there, but not in the best way. Um, And so we we were having a lot of conversations about that and just consciousness. And I was processing a lot, you know, like 
I didn't, I was sort of reevaluating what purpose was. And I was also re-identifying with my parents so much more because I was like, this whole thing where I'd put my life into work, work failed me. So now I was like, maybe they had it figured out all along. Through grounding, that makes complete sense. Yeah, that I was done with work for my entire life. So I'm, and I'm sitting with the shaman and then one day she was like, there's this woman, Tracy, and she works with all of the same shamans that I work with in Peru. And she hosts these ayahuasca retreats, but she's also a certified therapist. So she introduces me to her over Facebook messenger. And it turned out that two weeks from that date, Tracy was hosting a retreat in Peru. And wow. for two weeks, you're supposed to be on the special diet. So okay. that day I went on the special diet. Okay. And then that took me to Peru. After Peru, that a friend of mine that I had met there was like, you really need to go spend time at Esalen. And without knowing it, the time that I booked at Esalen was the time that Jamie, my mentor from Colorado, was hosting a flow workshop at Esalen. Amazing. And I hadn't seen Jamie in 15 years. Wow. What a great reconnection. I broke both of my wrists. And that was also where I learned breathwork, was Jamie during that retreat. That's really amazing. It's a great share. I really do appreciate it. I appreciate the candor with which you spoke and, uh, you know, your willingness to be vulnerable. That was really awesome, Hattie. Thank you. It's been, it's been a really cool journey, you know, in all of these experiences, like breaking my rib this week has, (laughs) I think all of this is almost like just me reminding myself too of in these experiences, like when you just think, something bad just happened in my life. Like the bad things have always then led to the good, led me to needing sort of a different level of purpose and alignment with the things that I believe in, in my life. And so, you know, all of these things, it's like this culmination of, you know, being aligned with purpose, but also aligned with what you're good at. And where your skill set is and what you can really bring to the world in a super scaled way. Um, So, Addie, once again, thank you so much. It's really great to be involved with you uh, on the breathwork side. It's great to know you. And and thanks for this really touching share. I really did appreciate it. Thank you so much. And uh, sorry about my my rib coughing and an attack at the end. but. But as you said, good things happen from there. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Hopefully that gets transferred over. Achieve is recorded at Subtractive in Hangar 8 at the Santa Monica Airport. Music is produced by Hennedy.